0: listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Parents and practitioners, check out my course Choosing Play, DIR120 at icdl.com under the courses link, Setting Up Success Across the Lifespan, being held May 4th, 11th, and 18th, 2023. That's Thursdays from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. In this three-week course, participants will review season one of We Chose Play and discuss each episode, and we will have Q&A, reflection, and action steps to support your floor time experience. Here's your chance to view the new documentary series you've heard about but haven't yet had a chance to watch. Also, coming up on Wednesday, May 31st from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be teaching Be Sure Again, DIR 402. Supporting, Understanding, and Respecting the Expectations of Parents. This is primarily aimed at practitioners and will explore the relationship with caregivers in the process of a client relationship. Topics covered will include the spectrum of parents and meeting the parents where they are by understanding their process and journey. How can you be the supportive and understanding practitioner whom caregivers trust and feel confident in? This course will help you raise your awareness and build your capacity for respecting the spectrum of families you see in your practice. See more under the Events tab at affectautism.com or at icdl.com slash courses. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Daria Brown with Mary Beth Crawford. She is back this week is a licensed physical therapist and a developmental individual differences relationship-based or DIR expert training leader who founded Baby Steps Therapy in 2008. She regularly provides lectures and in-service training to parent groups, medical professionals, allied health groups on the foundations of motor development and on her unique approach to pediatric physical therapy. She is here to expand on how physical therapy is enhanced using a floor time lens. Uh, we spoke a few months back. And we both uh, were at ICDL's New York City DIR floor time conference about a month ago. And she did a presentation there and realized she's got more to say. And we always have people asking about physical therapists because we hear a lot from occupational therapists and speech language pathologists and all of the other types of floor timers. But we haven't heard from any other PTs except Mary Beth. So here is part two. Welcome back, Mary Beth.
1: Hey, Daria. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was great to see you. Great to see everyone um, at the international conference. I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to present on some topics related to physical therapy and floor time and the connectedness of the practices. And yeah, as to reiterate what Daria said, coming, coming out of the weekend, I kind of had a reinvigorated passion to further expand I uh, many many um, professionals and parents were asking me to you know talk further about some of these concepts of how physical therapists can there's kind of two it's like a two-way street here right that the floor time approach informs pediatric physical therapy and then also the ways that pediatric physical therapy can support those higher level capacities and so there becomes, just like in the floor time model, some really beautiful reciprocity when there is that kind of relationship between the two um, approaches uh, married together to support development and growth for everyone. So thank you so much for having me back.
0: I love it. And I'm very eager to hear about this because my son is working on the higher capacities, still has some constrictions in the early capacities. And we're talking about the functional, emotional, developmental capacities described in the DIR floor time model. The first being regulation and shared attention, into engagement and relating with somebody, into back and forth uh, circles of communication. My son's got those down pat, but he still has constrictions in that regulation. And he still you know, has constrictions at the third capacity there, um, but working a lot on social problem solving, shared problem solving Um, getting into emotional ideas a little bit and uh, building bridges between uh, and logical connections between ideas so he's he's peaking up in those higher capacities for probably the last four or five years but really um, you know it pushing through all the aspects of the fourth capacity is so challenging and so I'm very eager to hear how physical therapy enhances that.
1: That is I mean my there's so many different ways I want to go with that kind of comment and curiosity. Um, okay. Fourth capacity. Love it. It is kind of that capacity where we've kiddos are cooking in their regulation. Everyone is in a shared joyful world. The The, the conference had a really strong theme of really bringing in the joy for all of our kiddos and and therapists and those of us teachers and play partners, parents, um, that, that really the joy in that shared world is foundational, um, to always remember that, um, one, one thing that I do think about a lot of times in terms of physical therapy and foundational floor time is that movement often brings joy. We, a lot of times in, in, Throughout, you know, interactions, we'll we'll come into a room and see that, you know, the grown ups are trying to sort of have kiddos sit down or have, you know, kind of control that environment. And you know, it's it's interesting to think, you know, well, if people are seeking movement, let's bring it in. Let's bring the joy. Let's kind of go and join kids in the movement piece, um, and and go with that and harness that. Um, In our last podcast, we definitely hit on the concept that Dr. Greenspan really was the foundation for the floor time approach, which is that bringing those three pathways together, our motor pathways, our sensory pathways, and our affectual emotional pathways. Um, what we didn't talk about, which I think we can really further expand on is the um, the newer research in mirror neurons right now. Um, the mirror neuron research that Dr. Iacoboni, Dr. Uh, Maranisi, uh, Donaldson, they're all bringing in this concept of um, the mirror neurons in our motor cortex, having relationship with the understanding of the not only motor patterns and learning motor patterns but also the in, intent and where that affect is of that person that the the person being the observer and and triggering their mirror neurons are actually linked to some lower brainstem levels where intent is being encoded and if we really think about that piece of our current research it 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 is synchronous to Dr. Greenspan's theory in the sense of our motor and our emotional intent bring together that body awareness piece. Um, We all know from research that kids who have regulatory challenges or identify autistic or who um, have an autistic spectrum disorder have decreased mirror neuron activity. Um, So- One of the things that I really want to emphasize as a part of the the foundational capacities in floor time and physical therapy is that there's a lot of research in the PT world where uh, VOR and gaze stability, vestibular rehab exercises can support gaze and that that gaze stability there in turn potentially has the capacity to support mirror neuron activity. So, So what's VOR. So I'm sorry. Yeah. So the VOR is a reflex of our vestibular system. Our vestibular system is in our inner ear mechanism. It it's semicircular canals that detect rotary movements and also gravitational uh, body head and space awareness. It's one of our major senses. It's an integrator of all of our senses. It has ascending and descending tracks connected with our arousal, connected with our emotional regulation, and then connected with our eye muscles. So the vestibular ocular reflex, BOR, is a reflex that develops, and it's not not a primitive reflex that gets integrated. A lot of us have learned about primitive reflexes being retained and we wanna integrate them. This is a different type of reflex where it's actually a stabilizing reflex that helps stabilize our gaze when we're moving through space. What the research shows now is that kiddos who have regulatory challenges, kiddos who might be relatively shifted into hyperarousal fight flight, have more cha- My son. have more challenges with their actual gaze stability. So if we think about that, marrying some vestibular rehab might really support the child's capacity to take in that nonverbal preverbal emotional cueing which we know as floor timers is so foundational to all of the higher capacities in particular, you know when we start into capacity four which you talked about, that's where we start to use our pre-verbal nonverbal communication and some words might start to come in and synchronizing that in a shared world is the foundation for developing that motor sequencing and developing the capacity to hold on to our ideas while we're processing the ideas of, of our play partner while we're navigating, you know, emotional reactivity associated with some boundaries um, and also not getting off the regulation track, kind of maintaining our regulation while we're negotiating with a play partner in capacity four, you know, that requires a lot. But one of the foundations is um, the gaze stability and having that intact VOR. That can be supportive of that process. Does that make sense? It does. So what do I do with my son to help him? Okay. So let's think about just bringing it back to the VOR. There are vestibular rehab exercises that I I sort of shared some video at the conference with um, younger kids through their their different capacities. One of the things, so the, the VOR, this is sort of what it is. You hold your gaze and you move your head. And that's a simplistic way of looking at this with a lot of kiddos in hyperarousal, that that the, the eyes and the head move together. And so then when you're moving in space or you're taking around, that leads to kind of a couple of things. One thing is you might have an under responsiveness to the vestibular system. A lot of kiddos needing a lot of movement. So one of the first things is back to what I said, afford the movement, provide the movement, provide a lot of opportunities for movement, because that's really what's going to harness that connection and that relationship, which is another critical piece we all know for expanding into our higher capacities. So joining movement, joining together, this is where it gets a little tricky because the PT mind might come in and say, well, you know, just do 30 repetitions of, you know, a certain gaze stability activity. And, and that might be fine. And well, if, if two people are having fun and being in a shared world and, and that's not kind of triggering a stress response, right? If, if, if you're at a capacity where you want to work on the VOR, it might be something where you can come in and tailor the environment as a floor timer to set up some swing activities or some different beanbag games where there's a lot of crossing midline and, and tracking activities with blocks. Or I showed a video where I had a little guy in a, in a swing and I was putting blocks on either side of him in this swing where he was well supported and getting a lot of movement and sure enough, he was able to turn around and he was just having a joyful old time tossing all these blocks off the swing and and not knowing that at the same time, he was really working on his gaze stability all, all along with this really fun activity. So is gaze stability something that improves with practice? So uh, I believe that it does the vestibular rehab literature, who, which there is not a whole lot on working with kids with regulatory disorders or specifically with a diagnosis of autism or who identify autistic, but there is a load of research on vestibular injury and gaze stability being improved post-concussion rehab, having some sort of central nervous system challenge, then working on the gaze stability, the ocular motor musculature, because these, these, muscles around our eyes can truly be strengthened their striated muscle, um, that that those exercises and those experiences can over time be supportive of, of the emotional signaling piece and be supportive of having an improved gaze. Um, so yeah, that's a really good question. And that is an area where we need more research, um, but clinical observations in our clinic show that that working on stability And, you know, being cognizant of supporting that while we're supporting foundational capacities can really be supportive of that ability to emotionally signal. And then to start to kind of develop that theory of mind piece that we're always kind of looking for um, in, in terms of understanding our own selves, our own bodies, our own motor planning, and then also understanding our play partners. Um, So
0: you said a bunch of stuff there that I want to just uh, point listeners to, because I've done past podcasts with other floor time experts on these topics that I can refer back to in the in the write up of the blog post. Um, So you said that doing more of these activities, supporting the foundational capacities, meaning supporting that they're regulated so they're not getting distressed. So I'm thinking of bringing our kids to a clinic and they tell you to do something and the kids don't want to do it. That's why we make it fun. And she's saying, support those capacities. So being in the swing with blocks, the kids love to move and throw the blocks. That's supporting their early capacities. I did a podcast with Keith Landair about co-regulation being the driver for sensory integration, where he talked about how you don't just sit a a kid in a swing, you interact with them while you're on the swing and and get all of that going. So that's supporting those early capacities, that engagement, that reciprocity, back and forth communication. And then you talked about... um, that this eventually can support emotional signaling. And that is one of the key, key pieces of Dr. Greenspan's theory. And uh, Jean Christian and I did a podcast about that, the importance of pre-verbal affective signaling and how that was everything to Dr. Greenspan um, in the floor time
1: model. That is literally one of my all-time favorite podcasts. When you did that and I listened to that, I, I think that that has, that podcast i believe i mean it gave words to what i've believed so inherently and and now we have the science in the mirror neurons to to back up that that hunch that that brilliant hunch that dr greenspan had which is that having the his, his you know in his books he talks about somehow there was a disconnect of the emotional intent and meaning fell off the motor pathways right they weren't they weren't synchronously developing together but he believed truly which we all believe too that with the right approach and with our attuning and supporting these individual differences of our play partners that 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 intent can can meet the praxis piece and so Uh, Yeah, And that's the the affect diathesis hypothesis,
0: which my very first blog post on affect autism is why the site is called affect autism is because it's about the affect diathesis hypothesis I I put it in plain language terms for people because that's a mouthful and it sounds very complicated but it's just what Mary Beth said uh, that the intent isn't there with um, and trying to bring those together so that you can have theory of mind and unless you understand what you had just said too, I wanted to highlight, unless you can understand what's going on in yourself and your own intentions and all of that, it's very difficult to understand that in someone else. And I know there's a big, um, debate because Dr. Simon Baron Cohen said something about autistics can't have theory of mind and and it got all blown out of proportion. Um, because self-advocates say, of course, we have theory of mind. Like, look at all this other stuff we do. It's, it's like the neurotypicals that don't have theory of mind, which I totally agree with. But what we're saying is, regardless of if you're autistic or not, theory of mind is developmental. And I did another podcast about that with Maud LaRue, um, that it is a developmental step that everybody goes through. And in order to support that, um, in our kids if they are not understanding what's happening in their own body and that they're gonna be delayed in understanding um, what's happening in someone else so to this day my son is turning 14 in a month-ish and you know I will talk about something and he'll just interrupt me and start talking about something else and and I'll try and bring it back to something that you know it, it's not something that he's not interested in but he's not yet getting that like Oh, if mom walks in the room, like if, if I'm grumpy or upset about something, like he's not picking up on that unless I explicitly say, Hmm, I'm grumpy. And he loves it. If something like that happens, or if I drop something, I'm like, ah, he's like, what mama, what? Cause that affect piece links him in. He's like, what happened? Are you angry? Be angry mama, which right. is different than actually understanding, like something's
1: different. And
0: and, and maybe on some level he's understanding it, but he's not
1: yet. He needs to feel it. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I was just working yesterday and and you brought up capacity for, so this is kind of a, <laughs> this is a little bit of a capacity for podcast, which is great because it's such a complicated um, capacity. Um, So agreed, so many things that you just said. So one of the things that, I we try to do and and sometimes and the thing is we stay there right we stay there with the kiddo because if we know you can't we know floor timers you can't learn what anger is by reading about it I mean if one of the things you have to feel it and experience it and and one of the things we know is you know that 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 has to be mirrored to us by our co regulator to some degree so we, we talked a lot at the conference also about the shared joy, but also co-regulation in the sense of in order for kiddos to really start to develop that self-awareness and, and experience what's going on as the co-regulator in floor time, what we want to do is is match to a degree. We don't want to match in a scary way, right? We don't want to trigger fight-flight But we do when there's a kiddo who, who is experiencing an intense emotion that they're overwhelmed by, we don't, we don't want to stay that like they're there, you know, and a lot of people are told or feel that that's the right thing to do. That might just be confusing for a kiddo who's not understanding or feeling overwhelmed by their emotions. So it is okay. And, and truly this is a piece of the floor time that marries with the PT that we want to go, Oh You're feeling so scared, or, you know, in a genuine way. But then we want to go, and it's okay. You're feeling scared. You know, I see we don't want to give them words to their feelings, right? So I know that that's not right, but we want to match the affect and then co regulate. We don't want to co regulate before we match it. We also might want to say, match it and give ourselves words. I'm scared. So that that kiddo then is starting to experience some. start to sort of like understand a little bit through our mirroring what's going on with their feelings. And then we co-regulate that, you know, these are feelings. It's okay to have these feelings. Um, But if the kiddo's gaze isn't stable, they're they're not really taking in our emotional signaling in the nonverbal sense. So that might be confusing to them and kind of perpetuate this challenge with feeling and experiencing because they're not really hitting those mirror neurons enough when we're mirroring so they might need us. I kind of said this in a news flash that I had done a couple months ago. They in order to really cuz we do presume the highest competence, we do know and we do listen to self advocates who have tremendous empathy and tremendous theory of mind and and who have expressed guess what? You know, it's not that I shut down because I don't empathize, it's that I feel so deeply what what I'm experiencing from from my the person I'm communicating with that I I kind of need to take some time, digression. But we might need to when kiddos are developing this, hold the facial expressions for a lot longer. Keep in that affect for a much more prolonged, more exaggerated, exactly kind of what you're saying because we do believe that you know those mirror neurons. There the science shows that mirror neurons are. Are are firing, they're just a little bit um, there's a la- a lower, what's the word, lower amplitude in the firing. So so that kind of gives us some leeway as parents, teachers, therapists to go, oh, all right. So they're firing. So let's let's just stay in this experience. Let's provide the movement piece needed to get there and let's harness all the pathways together, you know. I know that if I do sometimes hold that negative emotion, whatever state
0: it's in, like, (sighs) my son will be like, no, mama, be happy, be happy. No, mama, no, no. Like I see him get very like agitated Mm -hmm. and he wants me not to be angry, which shows that he is having a lot of empathy because it's, it's, oh no, I'm uncomfortable that you're feeling this way um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's complex, but it I don't is. know if you want to say something about that, but then I, I wanted to bring another point up about that, but did you want to say something about that first?
1: Um, no, no, I'm, I would, what that makes me curious about then, cause you're right, we know there's the empathy piece. I think I was, what I was thinking about in that regard is, you know, he's just not comfortable potentially With his own anger piece, then, like he's just overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? So then, it's a great opportunity for you to sort of be like, uh, you know, I'm really angry, and guess what? I'm gonna, you know, scream into outside, or I'm gonna, Mm -hmm. you know, punch a pillow. And then for him, you know, who's if he's really, he's really there with you to show him the process of like, ah, I feel feel better. Yeah. Well, the one thing I love is that
0: he's actually starting to say and label when he's feeling angry. So he's saying, I'm getting angry, mama. I want to hit you. Mm -hmm. So he's saying it. And so I have said, we can hit a pillow. Uh, We can stomp our feet. Uh, uh, uh," You
1: know, and I'm starting to do those kinds of things. And that, by the way, is where motor and sensory and affect meet. Bringing in the movement piece for emotions is another huge way to make those connections um, for the kiddos together, right? We It's really hard for all of us to process our emotions without movement. And so I'm so glad that you just used that example. Even joy, excitement, anger, there are motor patterns inherently um, wired for all of us that are with these things. And I think it's a great idea as play partners to bring all of the movement in with the emotions, because they will really further help the kiddos to feel and experience from all three developmental pathways what those emotions are.
0: I love that you brought up the three developmental pathways because it it's something that was so um, foundational to the theory that we don't talk about enough I know. And and I'm like, let's bring the motor piece back, baby. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And um, the other thing I wanted to make, the point I wanted to make is you, you brought up early in the podcast and we're still talking about it, these joyful experiences. But what I wanted to point out is if you look at the basic chart, which is the functional, emotional, developmental capacities, it's a checklist to figure out where your child is you know, in, in there. And and it's not a static thing. It's constantly moving. Like if we get upset, we're back in our early capacities. If, if I get cut off in traffic, I'm not having my higher order thinking that, you know, I might be in a conversation with a passenger or something I'm distracted and now I'm dysregulated because someone just cut me off. So we're all going, you know, back and forth through the capacities in some way all day long, Um, managing our capacities all day long, as we talked about at the conference. Um, but the point I wanted to make is when kids get, um, when we have these joyful interactions, that's great. But the key is, can they maintain connection when they're distressed? And that's where we see a lot of kids, um, parents at the parent support group that come, you know, saying that their kids melt down and they're just gone. I can't get any kind of interaction with them. And I remember those days because my son, used to have the meltdowns. It was years ago now because he's been at the point now for a long time where he can still maintain a back and forth functional, emotional, developmental capacity, three, uh, you know, back and forth interactions um, and emotional interactions while he's distressed. So when we say um, share joy and make it playful, we're not trying to suppress the negative emotions. And that's, I think, something that gets misunderstood around play. And I know Dr. Tippy brings it up too. He's like, floor time isn't always joyful. Um, we have to work through the negative emotions. And I think that's such an important point too. So I just wanted to have that disclaimer in there because I know people sometimes think, oh, it needs to be happy and play all the time. And it is, we chose play, but bringing it into a playful realm, as I talked about with Dr. Neufeld a-, a couple of podcasts ago, um, brings it um makes it less distressing. Like if you can bring it into the mode of play and, and work through emotions and you have to be able to feel all of your emotions, as you were saying.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. Um, I think that kind of speaks to, uh, I don't know if I'm going to change topics now. Tell me if you want to stay on this one. I'm thinking about the newer science in motor learning in the world of physics. So in the world, of physical therapy, there is a lot of talk on terminology for motor learning, um, and and the ways that the parts of the brain activated um, during novel motor learning, and the concept of like motor adaptation, motor action selection. There's phases of motor skill learning, and and you know, like we've said before, a there are strong links between our vestibular system, our limbic system, that that for that emotional regulatory piece, and and so I'm just thinking off of what you were saying about not always. Um, there's not always shared joy, that joyful piece, and that kind of like steady state activated relation being being engaged, sustaining that attention. and, and kind of sustaining that joy is a part of kind of that novel motor learning piece in which like, you know, if we're experiencing those big emotions, we're, we're probably not learning a new fine or gross motor task. Right. However, so that's kind of like where we're talking about, like the, the joyful piece, the engagement piece the we choose play is, is more foundational to novel motor learning experiences. However, adaptations of our motor learning, of our motor planning, once we have kind of our motor plan and we want to work on that adaptive piece, we don't really generalize a lot of these skills until we've experienced the full wide range of emotions with these novel motor plans, right? So so they're like two aspects of, and equally important, right? So, And it speaks to going from FEDC3, where we're like, joyful, 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 all this reciprocity, all this fun, all this fun, you know, and I, and to your point, and we say a lot of times, like you can't, the only way around FEDC four is through it, right? (laughs) Like these bit that, you know, all of a sudden there's a boundary and it's like a, there's a solid no. And, and all these big feelings come up that reality principle that Dr. Greenspan talked about. Um, and, and, Experiencing a wide range of emotions and feeling validated for those emotions, and and experiencing the capacity to stay self to stay regulated first in co-regulation and self-regulation is truly to your point and and the former podcast like that is the way to go from FEDC four complex communication and shared problem solving into that symbolic thinking realm because now um, what your son is starting to do is not physically express his emotions, but verbally express his emotions. So these words I'm angry have a symbolic meaning in to him and he can express them. And there's reciprocity on that higher plane of communication of that, you, you know, using words as symbols. And, and of course we know that, that the capacities, you know, are interlinked and we climb and up and down all of the capacities and, and, while kids might have some, you know, capacity to say I'm angry when they're angry, there might still be more nuance and development happening on that on that plane of symbolic thinking, and that speaks to continually sustaining affect, sustaining co-regulation, and sustaining that interaction to create the higher higher level thinking capacities. Um, Yeah. that's And,
0: and so I did, um, early on in affect autism, I, I took it right from engaging autism, the book, I did a series of blog posts called stumbling blocks, stumbling blocks at FEDC one, stumbling blocks at FEDC two, stumbling blocks at FEDC three, up to six. And what was clear in each, and they're like my favorite blogs I did on the whole website because Dr. Greenspan really gave you, um, tools of, how to strengthen the capacities, and every single one said, "I'll give you an example: FEDC four. How to strengthen it? Strengthen FEDC three. Mm-hmm. How do you strengthen FEDC three? Strengthen FEDC two. So you're always working on the, you know, the lower ones to get to the higher ones, and everybody's in such a rush. Uh, when I say everybody, I mean parents are thinking, and you know, rightly so, and and without all of the knowledge of Doctor Greenspan's theory." Oh, well, my child's in FEDC five, or they they think it's like, I got to get my child there, but it'll be so much better and so much more robust when those earlier capacities are strengthened. So even if you have to stay at FEDC three and four for like, it's been like seven years with my son, he's still working on the fourth capacity. It's huge. And he's still struggling with the third capacity in a group setting. He, he cannot sustain back and forth interactions in the group setting without getting dysregulated. It's hard for him. So um, you're always strengthening the earlier capacities,
1: even though you have islands into the higher capacities. So I, I think the concept that I'm kind of formulating in our dyadic interaction, because it always helps me to create new ideas when I'm talking to somebody and communicating, but the, the, the capacity to develop novel motor learning requires... An awareness of the new task, right? So that 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 piece. That's why in floor time we talk about regulatory, you know, regulation, co-regulation, because in order to access those higher brain centers, we know from neuroscience that we can do that much more readily when we're regulated, at, you know, and 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 then we can learn the new mo- novel task. Um, once that happens over a long period of time and that motor plan becomes automatic, you know, then less cognitive resources are required. Then we kind of use what psychologists say is implicit knowledge and those implicit movement procedural motor memories are more automatic and they're processed at the cerebellum and basal ganglia level what's interesting i think about the what we were talking about with the um vestibular rehab and eye movement activity um we know that motor learning continues when we're sleeping (laughs) this is go with me on this this is it, it's kind of fascinating, um, sensory processing. And I can send you references to put at the end of this um, podcast for people really interested in this. Um, Peralt, 2019, he did a great study showing that our sensory processing continues while we're sleeping and how important there also, there's another, he, um, there's another study in 2017 that sleep is an important aspect of the consolidation and retention phase of motor learning. So you know, for me, it makes me really curious about our kiddos who struggle to fall asleep and struggle to stay asleep and struggle to retain motor learning motor plans that they've learned over time. Um, because I, we all also know, and I, you know, not being, it'd be interesting. It'd be a good podcast to talk to somebody who's a sleep expert. I am certainly not, but I have a rudimentary awareness of reading about sleep. It's very interesting to me. And I know a big part of sleep is that rapid eye movement, Um, those phases of sleep when some of this consolidation in the brain occurs. um, And I do really think about the eye movements and, and how robust they might be during sleep for a kiddo who maybe doesn't register vestibular movement when they're awake. I'd be so curious to know um, if someone would do some research on the rapid eye movements of kids with regulatory challenges. Okay. So
0: potential PhD students out there, we (laughs) we need physical therapy research that she was talking about earlier on specifically kids on the spectrum or regulatory challenges, like you mentioned, and then we need uh, rapid eye movement sleep tests for kids with regulation. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sleep, I I, I absolutely, anyone listening, please, if you are a floor time and sleep person, email me, we need to do a podcast, affectautism at (laughs) gmail.com. So many parents struggle with sleep. And you know, this is why in my house, it was like, never, ever, ever wake up my child. I've never, ever, ever used an alarm clock to wake him up. If he sleeps in till 11 a.m., we're going to school late. I never, ever wake him up. Now, he never, ever, ever sleeps in that late. He's always, boom, fresh up in the morning, but at least he sleeps through the night now. But a couple of things. So, you know, we talked about this, uh, Maude LaRue and I, occupational therapists, talked about this developmental growth spurts how when you are um, what's the word Uh, consolidating whatever um, synthesizing new learning your other skills might fall to the wayside because you're working on it so hard so like think about when we learned how to ride a bike right I remember the day my dad had me on the driveway on my little bike when I was six or something and, you know, took the training wheels off and, you know, struggling to balance or even the first time you ice skate. And then, you know, now if I got on a bike, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just cruising along. Right. So that's what Mary Beth's talking about, like novel motor learning, something that's new. You have to really focus and concentrate on it. But once it becomes routine, you know, like if I'm driving down the street, sometimes I'll be like 10 minutes went by and I was like, I don't remember stopping at any lights or turning or anything. I My mind was somewhere else, but my body was just driving in just fine, functioning just fine, going through it because it's I'm so used to driving. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to bring up that I had forgotten and now I remembered was that my son is also physically expressing anger because he'll be like... I don't know. I'm angry, mama. So it's not just the verbal, but he's he's putting the affect into it and he might be stomping his feet. And sometimes he breaks things. Not too often, but every now and then he'll pick up something and he'll smash it or he'll throw it. And we want to kind of redirect that, like mm, it's not okay to break, it's okay to feel angry. You can feel angry. But let's smash a pillow instead. (laughs) So, but you're saying like providing those examples of stomping feet and smashing the pillow, like the motor stuff, when he's excited, he's flapping his arms like crazy. He's expressing his excitement through motor actions. Um, So those are the things I wanted to throw in there. (laughs) In the last podcast I did with the self-advocate Mickey Rowe, who was our keynote speaker at the ICDL International Conference in New York a a month ago. um, Mickey said that because he needed lots of vestibular input to his system when he was younger, he loved stilt walking, walking on stilts and being up high and doing that. And so that bringing that, um, movement in. And when he went to the theater, um, he, he had gone and tried out for a stilts role when he was like this tiny little kid and he didn't get it, but going to the theater, Um, allowed him to see those affective interactions with people without the pressure being put on him, which then gave him the motivation to understand and learn how to do those kinds of interactions in a scripted way as an actor, Mm -hmm. which then helped
1: impact um, his own development, which I, I just thought was so interesting. That is so interesting. It kind of speaks to when we do um, some symbolic play with our stuffed animals, or you know, when when we're playing with symbols and and able to process emotions from a little bit of distance, and and we don't become so overwhelmed. That that does make a lot of sense. Um, since we did, you know, we've been talking a lot about the importance of processing the gamut of all of our emotions throughout um FEDC4 um yeah giving a little space to process those emotions whether it's up high space no response space or just the the distance space in play and not kind of like internalizing it that all those strategies can be really really great for emotional processing
0: and what was really insightful too that he said which is so obvious but to hear him say it makes so much sense is that because he didn't speak or spoke differently people talked to him like he was a baby and he got to see natural interactions when he went to the theater because people spoke to him the same way they spoke to all the other kids because he was just an audience member whereas in real life people were like really infantilizing him what's the word um making him feel like you know I'm so different and what do you think? I'm not intelligent. Like what's going on here. So even though we say in floor time to exaggerate the affect and do that kind of thing, we, we still want to do it in a natural way without you know insulting the intelligence of the person that we're with, especially if they're not a baby. And we're, we're, it's, we're not talking about baby talk. We're talking about, you know, holding that moment, using that affect to stretch it out, um, which is different. So I thought that was, that was helpful feedback that he gave. As well,
1: I honestly think we all need um, floor timers. Would benefit from like improv classes on the daily, because it it is it's a skill. It's a skill that develops over time. And you know, like Dari and I keep saying to newer floor timers, you know, the more we practice it and kind of reflect on our own practice, um, the better we get at it. Because for a lot of us, you know, our intentions are to to catch the gleam to join our play partners. Um, but we don't always get it right. We hit the mark. I mean, some, you know, I watch my videos all the time, like, shh, be quiet. What are you, (laughs) why are you talking? You know? um, And, and so it's a, it's a constant process of, um, you know, giving it your best shot and then reflecting. And, and, you know, for a lot of people at the outset, when you make, have a big affect, you know, that does mean being louder and, and sounding, you know, not maybe how you're intending on sounding um but that that don't you know don't give up to everybody that comes with practice and again having having um colleagues or you know floor time mentors that can support all of us we all we all benefit from that practice and and collaborating in a trusting relationship with others to support our own practice so well, yeah. in the blog post, I'll refer people
0: back to the podcast with Mickey Rowe, back to the podcast on genuine affect and relationship that I did with um a couple of floor timers about a, a conference presentation from a few years ago and uh certainly the podcasts on self-reflection with Dr. Andrea Davis, which were, were helpful too. So um
1: always lots to learn. For for the PTs, we're I am, you know, speaking to everybody broadly, but also wanting to get more physical therapists using the floor time approach, um, because truly using the floor time approach is the way for you to meet your goals, right? So some of our goals as PTs are bike riding, stair climbing. You know, I really want to support our newer PTs to understand individual differences Use those tenets of floor time when you attune to yourself you attune to the child you understand individual differences, you create a relationship um, with the child with the family that and truly join the child in their interests and use all those foundations these are the ways to meet your goals for physical therapy, right? You were not getting, we're, we're, because the bilateral integration, the jumping jacks, the, you know, those crop, those, those capacities that we're working on also then in turn support, which is the other thing I want to talk about support, symbolic thinking support linking logical bridges. One of the things, really quickly, um, Daria was talking about um, in the motor learning. and now science has has fully uh, backed this up, is that newer models for motor learning include affective states. So now, whereas we've known this instinctually before, you know, when I went to school 25 years ago, it was like all about the cortical areas, the basal ganglia, you know, no no affective states were involved in understanding the science of motor learning. But now there's a newer model called op- the optimal, optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and intention for learning theory, which combines social cognitive, affective, and motor behavior, which floor timers understand. Um, but there there, there is there has been in the research now connections between the importance of incorporating affective states when you're learning new motor tasks. So very exciting out there um and and you know i know all of us are are very interested in having the research to back up these instincts that we have and and so the science of motor learning really does support using a floor time approach to physical therapy meaning being aware of affective states support you know validating affective states not, not ignoring them, not, not, you know, discounting them, but including them and even when it's
0: difficult and messy and annoys
1: you, Mm -hmm. right. Especially when it's difficult because processing and feeling those challenging feelings are, are really important to perseverance and, 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 you know, even though it might take more tantrums or more of that self-awareness or more of the co-regulation, you know, we presume that, that staying with those feelings and those challenges is really going to get us into the, those bilateral tasks that are challenging. And then the, the really one of the most important things I wanted to talk about too, I know we've been talking a long time, but there's so much research now to show that actually coordinating the two sides of the body really integrates the two hemispheres, the two sides of the brain, to get those um, higher level cognitive skills cooking in schools, right? Active working memory. And I will get I will send Daria um, a re- reference to put at the bottom of this podcast um, because I was thrilled at the amount of research linking um, bilateral integration in the body. Now being supportive of those capacities like visualization in space, developing and linking logical bridges in those higher capacities that when the, when the, when the body is crossing midline and doing these higher level coordination tasks, you know, as physical therapists, I say this to families all the time, like I'm not working on or cognizant of, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never forcing because we're floor time, but I I am aware of making these things fun and co-regulating through higher level coordination tasks, not because we're, you know, worried about high performance athletes or anything, but because we know science shows that developing this coordination in the body supports all the higher level cognitive skills that most, you know, most parents teachers loving family part play partners are are really looking at those higher level functional outcomes so i really really want to speak to the responsibility of all the pediatric pt's to be aware of that 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 these are these are skills that are foundational for all the capacities not not just for the motor track again motor sensory affect working together and 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 supporting all these higher level capacities. It's, you know, we're one one brain body.
0: And I'm trying to think of an example and I thought of a horrible one, but you know, trying to do that kind of work without the understanding of the other pieces is sort of like forcing a child who only has one leg to learn how to ride a bike and getting mad and more forceful and practice more, practice harder but it's hard for them because they only have one leg. That's a ter- terrible example. But, you know, just not understanding that just practicing a skill over and over when you are missing some of the supportive pieces, like like you mentioned, bringing together sensory, affective, and the motor really is so essential. And, and hopefully we will get more PTs trained in floor time to understand this. And, and, you know, I I know a lot of people take the basic course and they think, okay, I, I trained in floor time. There's so much to floor time. You could be understanding and taking courses for years and still the light bulbs keep going off. You know, people I've podcasted with, it's been 10 years for me. I'm still getting new light bulbs going off. Every time I have a podcast, um, people that I've spoken with who have been doing floor time for 30 years are still having light bulbs. So, Um, new people don't get discouraged but understand that you're on a great path learning all of these things that Mary Beth is talking about and and that the more you use them incorporate them in your practice the more you will see these kids light up and just be excited think about when we were in school what were you excited to learn about were you excited to go play soccer or do gymnastics or do you know what other physical thing like what which one excited you and why it's because you had that emotional excitement because your friends were playing too or because whatever it was there was an emotional component to that that made you want to learn how to do those motor skills so you know the emotional piece is uh, the affective piece is so so essential.
1: Yeah, it cannot be. I mean, we can't even emphasize it enough. Going for that, you know, that to anyone who's not taken 101 or a 201 course, you know, we call, we talk a lot about going for the gleam in the eye in our play partner. And You know, I think that's a great place to start for, you know, making that connection, knowing that you have a gleam, knowing that you have that connection. And then kind of, you know, another strategy that I use um, for joining is, is that modeling of things instead of, you know, coming in and saying, okay, Bobby, we're gonna do some jumping jacks today, you know, I don't tend to do that. I come in, I roll, I get up, I do some jumping jet, I make it look like the most amazing thing. And what that's doing is making it look really fun, but also, also. so I, I didn't explain the mirror neuron concept in the beginning and, and let me just explain it now. If anybody stayed with us this long, <laughs> the mirror neuron research is has, has shown in the premotor cortex of the brain that we have the same area of our brain light up when we are doing a motor activity and the same area lights up when we're watching someone do a motor activity. So, so what we're triggering when we when we are modeling and making things look fun and showing things in a very fun way is that we are also working on connecting the the um, intent, the intention, the awareness of our motor task with what our intentions are, um, and trigger trying to activate those mirror neurons that we talked about in our play partners. So I love it. the The analogy that I like to give um, when I when I'm, you know, communicating with someone who the child's getting frustrated or someone is frustrated with not being able to tap into, um, you know, someone's potential in the moment, I, I like to use the analogy of like, for me, putting putting a challenge like say i giving me a calculus problem and then just telling me like keep trying if i don't know how to add and subtract is it's never going to work i'm going to be frustrated i'm going to try and leave it's going you know so i like that analogy in terms of like going back to our building blocks if we find that i'm doing jumping jacks and no matter how fun or no matter what's going on, you know, someone's not, I haven't wooed or maybe I didn't join and maybe I haven't used my floor time tenants, but maybe that is a little bit challenging for a kiddo. Then what I do is from, from those bilateral skills that I might go back to down on, on, you know, my demands in terms of developmentally where the kiddo is, um, in their gross motor skills and kind of stay and shore up the foundations for developing those bilateral skills. Yeah. We don't ever, ever, ever want to force or push or, um, because the truth is when, we, you, when you're using this model, kids reach their higher capacities when, when, when they're supported at the foundations of their sensory and motor and emotional systems. And that's the goal of floor time. Yep. So if I'm thinking
0: about doing jumping jacks, so say my son is in a group of five people and the teacher goes and, you know, puts on a YouTube video and they start doing jumping jacks. Whoa, way too fast. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can't even do jumping jacks, let alone at the same time as my friends to keep up with them. So maybe it's making it fun. Like you said, you're doing them just one-on-one and you're, you're having fun. And then you're bringing in one other person and you're doing it super slowly together. Let's go up. Ooh and make some I don't know like some superhero thing like I am Superman and then down oh I'm back on the ground I'm up I'm up in space oh I'm down on the ground and like making it super fun and then faster Master,
1: Simon's oh, music the, make it you know group you know there's there are once once the child is ready for that sort of thing you know and and they communicate with us everyone communicates you know we we understand behaviors as communication and respect um someone's agency in communicating whether with their body or their words no um we do respect all of that but when they are ready making things fun like you know like freeze dance or dance parties or Uh, Simon Says is still really fun, you know, Um, things like games like that, make those higher level bilateral activities, um, motivating and intrinsically fun. So,
0: and one more disclaimer, because I, I don't want to insult people's intelligence by doing these kinds of examples, but some parents are really new to this. And I just want to make it clear when I'm going up on space, blah, blah, blah. You see, my affect is whoa, way up there and I'm upregulated. Someone like my son, that might be too much for him because he gets, whoa, you know? So my example is not necessarily the way to do it. I just want to point that out. I know it's obvious to a lot of people, but just, you know, if if people are saying, oh, I'm going to do what she said, I, you know, if you're with a child who gets upregulated easily, maybe you're doing it with lots of affect, but- mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. quieter and more slower and bringing it down. And, you know, I'm sure there's 8 billion other ways to do it, but that's just one point that I wanted to bring across. And, and that's, that's the tricky part of floor time is everybody wants the prescription and the instruction booklet, but every child's combination of all their different sensory and individual differences and relationship you have with them. And then your own profile of your own individual differences mixed together, like, it's totally unique for every case, <laughs> but yeah, there are yeah. these sort of overarching guidelines we can offer
1: mm-hmm. right, yeah, yeah. And I think that the understand for for physical therapists new and curious about the approach um understanding each individual difference and and understanding how to attune to and and you know be curious about their. The kiddos that they have the honor of playing with, you know, really being curious and learning about those individual differences will have a profound impact on, um, you know, their awareness of their own practice and and also on their outcomes. Frankly, um, because you know, creating attuning the relationship and then kind of creating those just right interactions are really what we are doing as floor timers Um, and I think that I think you know just back to the beginning I think that these two the physical therapy and the floor time approach are really set up beautifully to be used synchronously together.
0: For sure and that is key the just right challenge and you can't know what the just right challenge is if you're just performing like I think of kind of what I just showed is like, I'm performing like, and I'm doing this performance, but it's not, it's about attuning to the child. So as I'm doing it, I'm watching what are they experiencing while this is happening? Are they getting overwhelmed? Are they giving me cues that they're getting overwhelmed? Are they a little bit underwhelmed? Are they distracted and looking somewhere else? Are they, are they not looking at me, but they're still there in, um, you know, they're still engaged and attuned, but it's too hard for them to stare and have that eye contact. What is it like that attuning to them and understanding and adjusting yourself to meet where they need to be? And that made me think of one other question I forgot to ask you. Does, what does gay stability, what's the relationship between gay stability and eye contact? Because we see a lot of autistic kids not making eye contact. It's uncomfortable for them to make eye contact. And that has, does that have an impact on these motor mirror, sorry, mirror neurons that you were talk, you talked about? And that'll be our last topic before we sign off today.
1: <laughs> we could talk forever. I know. Um, I, I think we need more research on that. There is. So when I was doing my research review, um, let me see if I can find their aberrant, there were, you know, and I'm sorry, forgive me for using the medical model terminology here. Um, there was a study that was called, um, I think that they looked at diff, a, like aberrant meaning at, atypical, but I know that's another challenging term, um, but gaze pattern, there are, people have mapped gaze stability patterns. And there also was some preliminary studies showing that having, um, you know, a a quote unquote, atypical gaze patterns were a link to decreased mirror neuron activity. Um, And then, you know, we can extrapolate from that, that, you know, okay, so then maybe we can look at that and think about if we do strengthen that gaze stability and strengthen the capacity to hold gaze when we're moving in space, that that might in turn have a positive impact on the mirror neuron activity. Um, But, you know, I don't think a specific study has been done just on that with a specific population. It's very new. I mean, it's very exciting and new. And, you know, I think a lot of, there's a lot of labs doing a lot of, um, really great research now on movement, gaze stability and, um, mirror neuron activity. So, uh, you know, the preliminary research that I read there, there are certainly, um, enough connections where, you know, we, as floor type, we, we, you know, you never really force somebody, but we also know that when a kiddo turns to look at us and has the gleam that we've made a connection. So, the The concept of supporting that is probably the best way to say it is through our movement, through our affect, through activities is is going to have a positive feedback system on all of the development, the developmental growth because you know, thinking about our sensory systems and and our visual system, our auditory system. Those are ways that we connect with one another. Eye gaze, listening to one another and, and feeling one another and, and so on. So we know that those foundations will be supportive of all the um, FEDCs. That wasn't a great answer, but the, I think that's- No, but
0: much. you you took the words out of my mouth because when, even though our children- on the spectrum, you know, often don't make eye contact depending on where they are developmentally and all that jazz. I notice I get eye contact and always have when the emotional interest is there. So it's, it's not that they can't, it's that what you said, supporting when they can and when, and not forcing it. And when we see that eye contact I've given this example a billion times and maybe a few times in my podcasts about the little boy we saw all the time at train shows, model train shows. And I never heard him speak. I never heard him say a thing. He barely looked at me. And then I I spoke to the caregiver and I said, oh, um, just so you know, after the train show, we're going to the mall to see the Christmas train. And then the train club has an open house this evening. So we're going to go there and then get dinner and go to to the open house. And the boy walks right up to me, looks me right in the face and says, where's the Christmas train? And I was like, he talks <laughs> <laughs> because he was like, "Woo, where's that Christmas train? I want to know what this is. So he's got that interest, that emotion. And so, you know, by that's why we follow the child's interest in floor time to exercise those skills, right. so to speak, of when they're interested and in getting that uh, gaze and getting that. um you know, all of the stuff cooking that we've talked about throughout the whole podcast. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. Um, So many nuggets of information in this podcast, I'm going to try and highlight in the blog post. So look at affectautism.com under the um, podcast with Mary Beth Crawford, if you are doing a search to find it. this will be the part two of our physical therapy and floor time podcasts. Thank you so much, Mary
1: Beth. Thank you so much for having me, Daria. It's always so fun.
0: Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through icdl.com by using the promo code Affect A15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5.